Alright, well we're five minutes after now. Uh, I guess we can go ahead and get started talking about uh, the, the preface and first two chapters of Trotsky's History of the Russian Revolution. Uh, did anybody have, we'll, we'll just kind of go through it one at a time. Did anybody have any kind of interesting thoughts or anything about the preface? It was kind of just introductory. I like the way that Trotsky uh, phrases how a history should not only explain what happened, but should make you understand the logic of events and how they happened and why they happened that way and not some other way. I, I really like the way Trotsky presents uh, the history. I, th I feel like you'll you'll see that as we read it. It's like, oh, this is not only what happened, but why it did, you know? But if nobody has any thoughts on the preface, that's kind of my... Well, no, he's also got another comment that I like in the preface where he mentions specifically... Uh, and I'll, I'll post the... Because I've got this as notes. I'll post these as notes after the discussion in the uh, text channel. But he, in, in the preface, he attributes the primary cause of revolution to objective factors. And I think that has at least two significant takeaways. Uh, one is that... A revolution can fail to break out even if the subjective element, which would be like the political party of the proletariat, if the subjective element is extremely well developed and ready to go, uh, if the objective factors aren't there, then it doesn't matter. Uh, but the flip side to that is that even if there isn't like a political party at all, a revolution can still break out. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean it will be successful. Uh, but the, the conditions for a revolution can cause a revolution, even if nobody's actually trying to push for one. And there are various examples of that as well throughout history. Uh, the Russian Revolution is just kind of a nice example of a confluence of the objective factors causing a revolution to break out and the subjective factor being present to seize advantage of the opportunity. So I, I really like that he pointed, kind of traces that out a little bit in the preface. So the... Yeah, fire away. Um, okay, so I really like. Um, damn, I completely lost what I was going to say, but I really liked um, the way that he talked about how revolution, like trying to write about a revolution, is difficult because um, you know the people who have most access to media and to like distributing their information and whatnot are usually higher classes. Um, and so the sort of information that you're dealing with is already like skewed towards the more capitalist interpretation. And that like the lower classes, you really have to like pick like incomplete he puts incomplete scattered and accidental records you have to like pick apart what you can from the lower classes because they're not going to write or to document as much of what they were doing which i i think is really like um sort of fundamental for historic for historians and history it's like picking apart small detail and like scattered and hard to reach places and trying to create a bigger narrative revolving those little details that you find. 
Yeah, I think that's a really good point to, to pull out, too. I think along those lines, he also comments that while it is a difficult task for the historian to reconstruct events and the logic of events, it is not an impossible task. And I like that he cites the fact that, you know, he doesn't say we, but, you know, Trotsky and Lenin and Bolsheviks and Co., they were able to uh, divine the logic of the movement while they were in it in order to anticipate it and successfully uh, head off and lead and succeed ultimately in their revolution. So if they could do it at the moment while it was happening unfolding around them, it should be much easier to look back and be able to piece things together, you know, now that you're not under the stresses of actually doing a revolution. There were a lot of, a lot of sleepless nights uh, back in the day. After we do read this book, we're going to read um, John Reed's 10 Days That Shook the World. That kind of gives a more ground-level perspective of the October Revolution. Uh, and there's a lot of sleepless nights that are described, a lot of amusing anecdotes and so forth like that. Um, John Reed, why does that name sound so familiar to me? Yeah, he's most famous for writing 10 Days That Shook the World. He also wrote around with uh, Zapata during the Mexican Revolution as well. He wrote some things during that. Dude was pretty prominent in that regard. He goes from the Mexican Revolution in the uh, earlier part of 1910s over to Russia during 1917. <laughs> ah. Oh. Well, I did know that, but then I realized, oh... It's because he's in Kaiserreich in Hearts of Iron, where you can make him the president of the United States. Okay, okay. Yeah, he... So that that's how I know that. But but I also knew those other things as well. Sure, sure. Yeah, because he, yeah, he was obviously involved in domestic American politics as well. I forget, the, I think it was the Socialist Labor Party. I forget the exact name of what stuck around. One of the... One of the 700 splinter factions. Yeah, he and Freyna were uh, kind of... Actually, I don't know their history too well. I know they were associated and involved. I think they split off at some point or something, but anyway. So the first chapter, uh, Trotsky basically is just giving a broad historical picture of, of Russia and Russian development where it winds up before World War One. Would anyone like to try to take a crack at summarizing kind of where Russia stands or how Trotsky describes everything in Chapter 1? Uh, yeah, um, <clears throat> and this is kind of going in with my prior knowledge a little bit, but um, Russia's really kind of looked at as like that... Um, that win that you keep locked in the attic it's like yeah we'll acknowledge it but and we'll like feed it some chicken bones every once in a while but they're not really part of the european family so to speak like there's uh the cosmopolitan uh russia tm and then there's russia in quotation marks like toward as you get more eastern like towards the more uh parts of russia and for a long time like um it's just like under the control of like these different um i guess parties for the lack of a better term until like peter the great's like oh hey we should be more like those guys but even after that europe just kind of looks at it as like this um what like you know when you're a kid and you try to act like the adults so you kind kind of like dress as an adult but you don't really have any of the social graces 
or infrastructure in place to actually function like an adult. That's kind of what I like in Russia too. Like it tries to be European and modernize, but without like any of the infrastructure or the steps in between to properly facilitate all these changes. They're kind of just slapdashing things and hoping that they just kind of take off. And and it's well, we know what happens later. So like yeah, I guess that's just kind of my view. It's just kind of like this kid wearing adult clothes and just hoping that everything kind of works out. I like I like your um the way that you describe it, your analogy. Because I think it does resemble like what was going on the way that um Trotsky calls it like combined development where it's like you sort of like have or right, trying to right. replicate right you're trying to replicate like capitalism but at the same time you still have a czar you still don't like have really roads or a robust industrial system and stuff like that like um, it's just kind of like this really like gilded facade of what they think a modern power is um i will say though my sort of i have like this critique of this section being that like he does have a very linear idea of what development means which you know non-linear development like people having different places different cultures having different um sort of ideas and goals and definitions of what development is it's sort of like after trotsky's time so i won't like dog him too much but like he does like for example say like when talking about development talk about like how you know cultures go from bows and arrows to rifle and how like backwards he calls it backwards places are like in need of development which you know nowadays will be you know pushed back on the idea of like are all of these things necessarily development like for example becoming industrialized may to a lot of european countries seem as becoming more developed but i know by spending time in Mexico and indigenous communities that like they don't want to like have industry plants and all this stuff like they don't want to go above like there's this idea this european idea of like separating from nature and going above nature but a lot of indigenous people and communities want to like remain part of the land and don't have this idea of like separating from nature going above it they and just so kind of want to like, exist yeah they want to coexist exactly but and so this is like my sort of critique of this chapter of like the entire chapter saying basically um russia is backwards because it's more agricultural than it is industrial but that was just people thinking at the time 
Mug, you have anything you want to chime in with? Uh, I mean, I thought that was really that was really interesting critique because I think I thought about that for a moment, how it was very linear. But then I kind of like thinking, like, is that the point of combined development? What he's kind of arguing there about the fact that like combined development isn't necessarily you know a decision it's more like you're coerced into quote-unquote developing along the lines of these other relational powers so like i can agree that like i don't know kind of viewing things as linear isn't maybe you know the best way to view the world but i think using their perspective at the time in this idea of com combined development is kind of like justifying that i guess in little ways saying like it's not it's not like think it's not them thinking that they had to go down that route but they're like i said coerced down that route and i think it i guess ties back to to the fact that like what he talks about is the fact that the bourgeoisie in russia at the time is indebted to western powers and that indebtedness essentially you know forces their hand into developing along the similar path as those Western powers, both like technologically, economically, and culturally. Um, which then obviously leads to, um, you know, pulling them into like conflict further down the line. But yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that's an interesting way to look at it though. Chris or Chris Key. <laughs> Christian, Chris. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of cool. Um, yeah, in addition to that, I don't know. I mean, um, yeah, I kind of just viewed it as, you know, I, I have very little knowledge of uh, Russian history before this. And I just saw it as, I mean, similar to what you guys kind of described it as, is Russia is quote unquote backwards compared to Western powers. And then on the East, they have, you know, constant conflict with these, I guess, like clans or other powers, and in the West, they're kind of indebted to the Western bourgeoisie, um, so they're pressured from both sides. You know, this idea or this law of combined development is what, um, you know, throws a bunch of technological advances onto the, the peasantry of Russia, allowing them to, from this perspective, to kind of skip a bunch of stages of development and pro proletarianize much faster than other um, states did in the past. Also forcing, you know, the bourgeoisie to uh, into a situation in which they don't really have left revolutionary force because Russia essentially skips that whole phase of handicrafts and manufacturing, goes straight to heavy industry. So the bourgeoisie kind of misses their opportunity to to create a revolutionary kind of force while the proletariat is, you know, crystallized through this, this law of combined development. I thought, obviously I thought that was all very interesting as that was the point of that chapter. Um, yeah. So yeah, like I said, this is kind of my first dive into Russian history. So it's, it's, I'm really enjoying it so far. This is really fascinating stuff. So uh, yeah. Yeah. I think those are all really good thoughts. Um, I'm, I really like Mug pointing out the uh, the fact that, like you said, it's not like it's not so much that Russia is like choosing to develop this way. That's kind of the objective situation they find themselves in, stuck between Europe and Asia. And Russia obviously is a huge landmass, so 
simply in order to defend themselves and avoid becoming a colony of Europe, they are forced to develop their, their military, they're forced to overinvest in their military, they're forced to keep up with Western traditions of military, they're forced to industrialize to keep, in order to keep up with um, a military production just so they don't become a colony of, uh, of Western Europe. And it's it's interesting too that Russia, the the role Russia plays in like the eighteen hundreds as far as uh, global politics go. The the first international which Marx and Engels were a part of was formed out of a large concern for the uh, international gendarme role that Russia was anticipated to play. They they were expecting Russia to kind of put down any European revolution. That was one of their big fears that if a revolution broke out in Europe that Russia would be the line the last line of defense that the the czar and the czarist army would come in and wipe things out and kind of restore the status quo or make things worse as that goes um i I like that Trotsky explains why Russia is uh, less developed compared to Europe. He mentions it's mostly because of the large land mass, such that once the peasantry starts getting concentrated, instead of having to make their social relations complicated, they can simply spread out and just, hey, there's more land over there, we're going to go farm over there, instead of having to uh, establish like divisions of labor and uh, establish cities and things like that. The cities don't really crop up as a result of population density and congregations of people. The cities in Russia, Trotsky points out, are not cities of production. They're cities, they're sites of consumption. They're, they're where the, uh, the monarchy goes and establishes their large villas and they wind up being military centers and, uh, like, like I said, centers of consumption and not really centers of production. So that really kind of colors Russian development. And like we were talking about, several people mentioned that, uh, or someone mentioned that the, the bourgeois never really had the opportunity to have their revolution. And what that means concretely is that the Russian bourgeois were never in control of the country. It, the control of the nation never left the hands of the czar, the monarchy, the, the feudal aristocracy, because the bourgeois could not wage their revolution. They, they missed their shot at that. So they're, they're playing second fiddle to the czar, and as a result, they, they don't really get their way, and the czar sits in political control of the country. And it, and it leads to this unstable situation where Czarist methods of organization are, are no longer enough to keep up with the development of Europe. But the bourgeoisie can't impose their methods of organization because they lack political power. And they cannot obtain political power of their, on their own. They need another class to, to wage a revolution and kind of prop them up, which is historically what's happened. Uh, the peasantry has typically waged a revolution, and the bourgeoisie has been the benefactor. Uh, but this can't be the case in Russia, because now there's a proletariat class that has sprung up, and if a revolution broke out, the proletariat would contest the Russian bourgeoisie for control of that revolution, which is exactly what happened and what we're going to look more at, but it explains the hesitation of the uh, the Russian bourgeoisie to kind of 
agitate and try to overthrow the czar. They, they wind up realizing that they depend on the czar's political power for their own interests, basically. So, kind of going over from this, this background reading here, we also have uh, a chapter on what exactly Russia's role and situation was in the First World War as it broke out. Uh, we'll, we'll go around and have another round of summarizing stuff if anybody wants to volunteer to be the first one to start talking about that. And if nobody does, I'll, I'll make a more general remark too that um, just as far as the structure of this book is concerned, we're going to kind of alternate between two different phases. We're, we have phases where we set up the board, and then we have phases where we actually move the pieces. Right now we're setting up the board. Later on, things are going to actually happen. Oh. But then after that, new characters get introduced, and so we reset up the board again before we can move the pieces again. It's somewhat uh, tiresome once you get pieces moving and then we start going back to exposition, but it, it helps to clarify the things that happen and why they happen. I'll say that just as kind of a general note. I can give it a really uh, broad shot, I guess. Um, probably just talking through, trying to remember what I read. Um, so, I mean, kind of going back to what I was saying a little bit um, earlier, Russia was kind of indebted to Western powers. Um, the bourgeois, like, since they're indebted to the West, kind of, from my understanding, uh, were, like, drawn into the conflict, World War I, um, kind of having to play that, um, that, uh, that, side, that side role. Um, kind of like the sidekick who has to just play along, um, and in doing so, um, they're kind of drawn in. And then I think, what is it like? Tsar Nicholas like was having, you know, obviously having difficulties just because of his own, you know, character, but also uh, technological and like economic uh, difficulties with the conflict with the war and so what he did was um essentially entrust the the war effort to um i guess the, the aristocracy like and uh turned it over to you know private industry to kind of take control and in doing so that you know uh that helped with their effort and but it also uh, made it you know, all those people incredibly wealthy. And so you have the conflict happening and there's this huge class that's, you know, reaping the benefits of it back in those, those cities. And, you know, they're just having kind of the time of their life while obviously the peasantry is forced to go and fight in World War One, And so there's a huge, you know, uh, situation of tension there between those two those classes and um you know in addition to that uh i mean the stuff i where i get confused is with the duma um i know there was like a you know the, the 
there was a, a block, a progressive block created through the Duma at some point, uh, probably preceding the stuff I just talked about. But yeah, I guess you did. Yeah, you have the peasantry that's you know fighting in the in the war. Then you have the bourgeois who are reaping the benefits and enjoying their lives. And over time, um, by way of the Soviets, the the peasants on, in the in in the conflicts um, start to kind of realize that that situation sucks and that they're just kind of cannon fodder while these people are just living their lives in extreme wealth. And so you start to have pushback, um, kind of the, the beginnings of a revolutionary kind of uh, thought permeating. And then you also in the cities, you have people with yeah, Soviets who are, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, agitating in cities are then sent to the front as punishment, but in doing so, they are also helping educate um, the soldiers on the front, and so it kind of backfires for the, the bourgeois and helps kind of uh, solidify that uh, the proletarian kind of class consciousness, and then that, uh, yeah, I guess that's kind of what I took away. Just once again, kind of talking through it, not really linearly, but trying to remember what I read. But yeah, like I said, I, where I get confused is with the role of the Duma and kind of the the, pro, the progressive block and how that all kind of worked itself out. So uh, from my vague recollection uh, when I read about it eons ago, uh, the Duma was basically a um, response by all these uh, liberal progressive forces to like keep in check the power of the czar because this is after 1905 where mm -hmm. they're like hey um can you not do that anymore so like they just basically want like a like a british parliament or our congress but it really doesn't end up it it ends up being like an empty suit of a thing really there's nothing really there because like as you've or maybe not you but like as uh as you can see, uh, if you read about it a little bit, the the czar basically just kind of does away with it whenever he doesn't like something that they like propose. So he dissolves it and then like brings it back and then dissolves it and brings it back. And it's just kind of like this thing that he just kind of like acknowledges exists, but he doesn't actually like take it seriously in any real sense. And with uh, what was the liberal? Well, were the, yeah, cadets, the cadets the liberal were the party? There were so many; it's hard to keep straight sometimes. Right, and it's just like you can see. Uh, I wouldn't say sycophantic, maybe in this context, but I you could make the case for it. But they're just kind of like, like, uh, not. Eating, but like really trying to get into the good graces of the czar and the czarist government so that maybe something uh can get passed to appease like their their liberal ideas but nothing really like worthwhile in the grand scheme of russian politics at the time and it's really just kind of this like i said before this thing that just kind of 
goes away and comes back at the wish of the czar. And uh, I don't know if it was mentioned in this, and it might the book might get into it a little bit later. But um, like at the at this time, like the the czar's cabinet and like all of his advisors are in such like a like a tumble mode in the dryer. It's like they just come and go as they please because eventually the czar just decides, hey, I, I can do this. I can lead our forces to victory. So he essentially just leaves his German wife to just handpick uh, ministers at her wit and no one likes it. And it obviously I'm assuming we're going to get into it later, but yeah, it's just essentially this ineffectual kind of, weak check to the czar you know it was created in response to the the russo-japanese war like after that uh i don't think the russo-japanese war it was more i think probably around the time of the 1905 revolution but i'm not sure if it was a cause of that either i just know like the duma at 1917 was a relatively recent, like less than 20 years old hmm. kind of thing, because the the czar is like just a really ineffectual person, and they're just like, hey, uh, we're just going to suggest things and hope, hopefully by God, by the grace of God, you will do help do pass them or whatever, and. It obviously doesn't work. It it whenever I read about the Duma, I just kind of like giggle and laugh because of how just limp fisted it all is, really. Yeah, I think that's a good description of the Duma. It might be. Um, it, it's a consul it's literally just a consultative body for the Tsar. The Tsar can just say, what, what do you guys think? It's it's just kind of like a, a barometer <laughs> of public opinion, and by public opinion I mean public bourgeois opinion. And the czar can just be like, okay, cool. I'm going to go do this anyway now, regardless of what you think, but I appreciate you chiming in. But yeah, the Duma, the, so the Russo-Japanese War was ended in 1905, which is, it, it kind of led to the 1905 revolution. And Trotsky kind of does draw the parallel that the 1905 revolution mm -hmm. is kind of like just the dress rehearsal for the 1917 revolution almost everything is identical just on a much grander scale instead of just a russo-japanese war it is a world war that is precipitating it instead of a failed revolution it's not a successful revolution uh but one correction i wanted to add to stuff you were saying mug you, you mentioned the soviets a couple times and they at this point they didn't get established until 1917 where obviously russia was involved in the war before then so they weren't they weren't like an active element or anything like that until 1917. A lot of the uh, disruptions and stuff you're talking about were happening in more of a disorganized fashion than that, which is fine. I mean, like, functionally, the Soviets just served to intensify those sorts of efforts, but just kind of wanted to, to point that out. <laughs> but I do like that you emphasize that the, the army, that the Tsarist Got army it. was basically a peasant army so the peasantry as it played its role in the 1917 revolution was playing its role through the guise of the army and not just as a peasantry in the countryside which kind of altered the dynamics a little bit so that's a, that's a good point to kind of keep in the back of your hat for all this 
One thing I thought was absolutely fucking bonkers reading this, and it didn't occur to me. So Russia at the time is a country with a population of 150 million. Trotsky writes that 15 million men were mobilized. That is literally 10% of the entire nation is mobilized for war. And he later writes that 5.5 million get counted as killed, wounded, and captured which is almost 4% of the entire population of Russia was killed, wounded, or captured. That's absolutely insane how many people got mobilized, killed, wounded, and captured. Yeah, I... And that's kind of, like, the one of the things I, uh, not not like, because, you know, like, we shouldn't be sending people to die for things, but... Like, uh, Russia's kind of always just had this, like, huge population, and it kind of just throws it at whatever problem <laughs> comes up. Like, uh, I actually just finished watching a series on Crimea, and it's kind of like the same thing. It's like, oh, we have this huge army. Let's just throw it at this French and British contingent. But it's not really well-trained, so the British and French just kind of, like, eventually just pummel through it. Like, it's always just kind of been, like, this cannon fodder-style approach to things. And while it did work in the Second World War to an extent, after a while, uh, historically, it's always kind of just been, quote-unquote, their thing. To just massively mobilize and go fight in the name of the Tsar. Like, uh, with and in Crimea... Uh, there was this thing where it's like, oh, any any peasant that signs up to fight in the army will uh, win their freedom. So, like, you had these huge mobs of people that eventually the military was like, oh, just kidding, uh, go away. So, it's just always kind of been this weird, yeah, goofy thing how, with their population. Uh, basically, the whole chapter is, like, Russia's in the war, but they're getting absolutely dumpstered pretty much on every front. Because despite being propped up by these Western nations and being handed uh, highly industrialized factories, they are still not a properly bourgeois nation. So they do not have the type of infrastructure needed to support a modern army. There's no rail lines to the front. Uh, the, the front line is not supplied with like basic things like boots or rifles and ammunition, things like that. So they they have no logistics within their army that are capable of matching Germany's, which is at the time the most industrialized uh, nation on the planet. So they're just getting outmaneuvered left and right, uh, getting pretty much beaten on every battle. So demoralization is just like massive. Desertion is going on like crazy. There's strikes in the rear, and then punishment, as Mug mentioned for striking, is to get sent to the front. So the most militant workers are being sent to the front to agitate there functionally. Uh, so everything's falling apart. And kind of the one of the big points that Trotsky's trying to make here, because this is a accusation that gets hurled, uh, particularly in Germany, but we'll address that when we come to Germany, uh, but that the revolution was why Russia lost the war. People are, you know, the the stabbed in the back kind of theory. And it, Trotsky's like, nah, kind of Russia was losing this war without the revolution. It was going to lose all by itself. Um, the revolution happened 
more or less because of the state of the army. Things were dissolving so rapidly. Uh, demoralization was so high. Uh, Trotsky's just trying to point out that, you know, you, you can't accuse the revolution of having lost the war for Russia. That's not at all what happened. And he cites various figures who were hostile to the Soviets who attest to the fact that, you know, things were not going well. But that's kind of a... um a sort of nationalist myth that persisted a little bit after the revolution that Russia could have won the war if only if it weren't for those darn Bolsheviks agitating for a revolution, you know? So he's kind of nipping off that argument early out, early on here. Yeah, I, I really love that uh, stabbed in the back myth thing because it obviously happened here, it happened in Germany. But, like, if you take an objective look... It's like, nah, like, Russia would have lost. Germany, or nah, Germany would have lost. Just, like, look at it. Just just look at it. Don't be weird and just look at these facts. Like, you were just absolutely getting pummeled left and right. But, nah, I guess just inhale that copium and be like, nah, it was, it was, it was the Reds. Like, I always just think, like, um, it's just really funny. It's like, oh, we would have won. It's like, uh, oh, I, I would have won the football game had the wide receiver caught the ball. It's like, my guy, you are you were already losing, like, That's funny. three we're to sports analogy Like, what are you doing? All right, well, we've got, like, oh, I guess we do have, like, 15 minutes left. I was going to say, if anybody had, nobody has any additional <laughs> thoughts, I was thinking two more chapters for next week. They're going to be more setting the board chapters, and one will... Well, the the second is literally entitled The Tsar and the Tsarina, so we're definitely going to get into all of that. But I think that's probably a reasonable amount to read for next week, if everybody thinks that's pretty good. I do want to add, because I think Trotsky mentions the orthodoxy, and I, I don't think... Uh, I think it kind of gets overlooked as far as Russian national bodies go because the orthodoxy in a way is kind of like the west and the catholic church except i think it's a more concentrated i think in russia like the orthodoxy is not on par with the czar but it definitely is a powerful tool that he wields and the amount of sway that it holds over the average uh, peasant, or like even just the average person in Russia at this time, is just absolutely immense. And uh, I just don't think that enough light gets shed on it in a way, uh, because well, obviously you have the military failures and. Obviously, poor leadership of the Tsar, but I think it's important to realize that the Russian Orthodoxy is this institution that's for hundreds of years just kind of been at the beck and call of the Tsar, and it's just kind of like, go disseminate God's word, except it's yeah, and of course, the Tsar I, as you say, the Orthodoxy is the, Rus the the church in Russia, just in case anybody's confused about that. Yeah, that's definitely a good right. point to bring up, too, because I think 
Trotsky mentions uh, why the church never rose or never had its reformation like it did. I think that might have been the the first chapter, not the second one, but regardless. Um, yeah, it, it becomes basically a state institution. It becomes integrated in with the czarist uh, cabinet almost. I mean, like it's it's almost just another branch of the government, no different than the police, basically. Yeah, would you disagree? Would you say it's pretty accurate? Yeah, it's, uh, to avoid repeating myself, like, it's it's just kind of like this, uh, I don't want to say cudgel, but it's definitely like this thing that hangs over, like, the peasantry, and it's just like this, like you said, this state apparatus that the czar just wields as he sees fit. Like, uh, I think, because I think Trotsky makes a comparison to the estate system in France, and it's, uh, like, there's obviously the first and second, and then the bourgeois being this third, and then, like, the second one is obviously this powerful, right below the first estate orthodoxy that is just ever-present in the average Russian's life at this point. All right, well, uh... Does anybody else have any kind of closing thoughts as we wrap things up? If not, we can uh, just read the next two chapters. I'll post it up as an announcement uh, sometime tomorrow, probably. Maybe today. I don't know. We'll find out. But yeah, thanks everybody for showing up. Uh, it was a good discussion. Hope everybody took something away from it, you know? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, very and awesome. Very cool. I will Talk try to not finish hey, it you right came before fresh. the it's next good, uh, right? discussion. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> I was just glad, like, yeah, these first two chapters, I was like, oh, okay, I basically know uh, 1917 itself. It's, I think the next two chapters will probably be like, mm, yeah, I kind of got this, because it goes into, I mean, it's the Tsar and the Tsarina, so if you have any familiarity with the whole Rasputin affair, then Trotsky kind of goes into all that. I hope nothing yeah, bad yeah. happens to them and it turns itself into a DreamWorks movie. I remember when I was a kid and I saw the movie Anastasia, I was like, oh, I'm so, I'm so glad nothing bad happened to her. And now that I'm an adult, oh, I'm no. like, no, I would have done the same thing. Because, like, there's, like, there's there's this big scene where it's just, like, the Russian Revolution and, like, the children are trying to hide and everything. And she's, like, and, and like, the little peasant boy, Dimitri, is, like, oh, come with me. And, like, she eventually, like, gets saved Yikes, and everything. And I'm, like, oh, you get the wall, Dimitri. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, but, like, now I just look at that video and I'm, like, it's, like, it's a good movie, but now there I'm just go. like, mm, but yeah, so you probably now won't I understand get, why uh, they're revolting. Content that's new for you probably until maybe after next week, probably <laughs> something like that. Well, that's all good too. Mhm. Mm <coughs>
Mm. Yep, yep. Have a good one. All right. Uh, If that's everything, I'll see you next week then. You too.